Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Bhumika, the host of the channel for today. And today, I'm delighted to be talking to Dr. Sarah Smith, uh, who has authored not one, but two books this year. And I will say more about that. Uh, Sarah is a professor, uh, an associate professor in the Department of Geography at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. She is a political geographer who's interested in the relationship between territory, bodies, and the everyday. And uh, of the two books that Sarah has published this year, uh, we are going to be talking about this fabulous book printed by, published by the Rutgers University Press in a series called The Politics of Marriage and Gender, Global Issues in Local Contexts. Uh, and the book title is, uh, I love I love the title of the book, and we'll talk to Sarah more about the title and the book cover, which is, I wish you could see it, it's equally fabulous. Uh, the book is called Intimate Geopolitics, Love, Territory, and the Future on India's Northern Threshold. Congratulations, Sarah. We're so glad to have you here. Welcome to New Books Network. Thank you so much. And it was so kind of you to invite me. I really appreciate it, Bumika. Fantastic. Uh, uh, Sarah and I have had a bit of uh, back and forth, deciding about the time. This has been a stranger for all of us, and I'm glad this is finally happening. Uh, and perhaps it is uh, not only coincidental uh, that this is also this conversation is also happening in the backdrop of um, uh, a border dispute uh, between India and China, primarily in the Ladakh region, where Sarah has done much of her field work. Uh, but we'll, we'll come to that in a bit. Um, and before we get to the book, I actually want to invite you, Sarah, to tell us a little bit about your journey in academia, uh, your journey in geography, your journey to Ladakh, your journey with this project, uh, or the many sort of projects that you've been doing for a long time. So yeah, your many journeys, actually, and it would be lovely for us to uh, get to know about your, your various paths and pathways. Uh, into academia and scholarship. Um, let's see. So it's it's a typical story, I think, for geography in that I came to geography without knowing anything about it, which I think is normal for Americans. <laughs> um, so in, I guess, around 2001, I was thinking... I was up in Ladakh and I was working there with the person who I would marry. We were working with a local NGO and feeling just a little bit frustrated um, with what we knew about the broader picture and how we understood our work in Ladakh, which often felt frustrating, um, working with local women trying to understand how they could transition to a new economy. But so many other things were going on and a lot of NGO work can just start to feel really 
frustrating and like you're going in circles. So we thought we needed a broader perspective and decided really naively to go to graduate school. Um, and I wanted to go back home. So I went, I wanted to go back to Arizona. And when I researched, I ended up in geography only then. I had never taken a geography class in my life. So that was, was all completely accidental. Um, once I was there and learning from especially Sally Marston about political geography and the ways that our day-to-day life is caught up in things like nation, nation-state, nationalism, and territory, I started to see the world in a really different way, and it was very compelling to me. Um, so, so I mean, that sounds, that does sound like um, uh, a lot of us who go to graduate school disenchanted by the world and then perhaps get a little yeah. more disenchanted yeah. by the world uh, yes. when we are in graduate Absolutely. school. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so tell us about, tell us about, um, uh, about, about your journey to Ladakh as well, where it seems like you were already embedded uh, in other forms of work and engagement before you embarked on, on to sort of this more, you know, rigorous research project uh, for, for academia. Sure. Yeah. So I, I first went to Ladakh in 1999. And um, that was, of course, really shaped by then it was the Cargill War. So my experience was of being told before arriving that Ladakh was a really dangerous place, perhaps you shouldn't go. And then, of course, from the moment that our airplane landed, it didn't feel like that at all. Um, so my introduction to Ladakh was also shaped by this geopolitical storyline in the background in contrast with how it felt to be in Ladakh at that moment, which was quite different. Um, when it comes to the, the, the way I came to the book, it's interesting that at that time, arriving there as a stranger, so many things that were geopolitical were happening, but they were such that a visitor to Ladakh wouldn't really see them if you weren't able to speak Ladakhi or be kind of in, in these kitchen conversations where things are very geopolitical in their own way, but I don't think it's, it comes across to outsiders because you don't understand sort of the gossip, which is key to understanding how, how people are relating to these larger forces. Um, so at that time I did a volunteer project and, came to know folks there and ended up working for the local women's alliance and got to know Ladakh in a really specific way through hanging out with just ordinary folks thinking about how to make life better for people in the villages and so on and so forth. Um, When it comes to the story of the book, I think that the book really starts in 2004 um, where 2004 was a year when I interviewed this couple that I start the book with, this Buddhist Muslim couple who ended up being separated. Yeah, exactly. So that was this year when I interviewed them, and I also had my wedding reception. Um, yeah, which is key to this story. I'm not just relating a random personal anecdote. <laughs> So we had, um, my husband is from Ladakh. We had gotten married in 2002. 
but typically in Buddhist families, you have like a little wedding and then a couple of years later, you have a big one. So this was the big one. And I had interviewed this couple and seen their marriage get really destroyed by geopolitical forces. And then that same summer, I was wearing the parak, this turquoise headdress, and dancing at our wedding. And I'm a complete outsider. I'm wrong in every way. <laughs> Trust me, my in-laws were not happy about their son. <laughs> Their son's choice at first, it took a while to warm up to me. And then all of a sudden, I'm at this wedding and people are celebrating our marriage. And in the background is this knowledge that this other couple who equally sort of in love with each other, equally close and intimate, had just been separated. And I kept thinking about the differences in in that situation and the way that even though I was an outsider, I wasn't a geopolitical threat in a specific way in relation to the future of Ladakh. I was sort of irrelevant. <laughs> so in that way, people could dance at our wedding where they, they couldn't for this other couple. And that really hit home for me in a specific way. For me to think through things as an intellectual and political project, I feel like it it helps if I can understand them in relation to our sense of self and subjectivity and how we relate to one another. So that really struck me. And I, I kept thinking about it for years after and really drove my dissertation and then the book. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I, I don't think I've ever heard the word dancing at a wedding and geopolitics strung together <laughs> so seamlessly in the same sentence. Um, and it does it does reflect sort of you know, the various ways in which you have been both sort of you know intimately, distantly, professionally, scholarly, politically engaged with this project, which is very very um, it's it's very well reflected in the writing of the book as well. Uh, and because I read the book recently, it's kind of fresh in my mind. And you know, I I meant to ask you uh, also, and you brought it up in your sort of, you know, when you were telling us about uh, Fatima and Pazor and your own uh, uh, relationship and uh, the small and big wedding. What What is the legacy of this term geopolitical, right? Because uh, like you're beginning to talk, uh, 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 the way it is, the way the way we understand geopolitics, uh, but the way also in which it uh, it seeps into kitchen conversations or marriages or uh, who gets to be the deserving bride um, are, are also intimately connected, like you are able to tell us. But for our listeners, I actually wanted to you to ref, you know invite you to uh, tell us or explain to us actually. Uh, what is the particular sort of conceptual um, context in which geopolitics is generally used and what is that legacy and what are the ways in which your own work engages and departs from it in the context of sort of love, uh, temporality and uh, territory uh, in, in Ladakh? Sure. So I think when people hear the word <clears throat> When people hear the word geopolitics, I think they think about battle plans or military strategy, 
and struggles for the nation state's kind of military dominance in the world. And that's how the term originates in intellectual thinkers who are tied up in state projects of empire, of imperialism, of maintaining geopolitical might in the global stage or on the global stage. So I think that that's how it has conventionally been understood. And if you look at older political geography textbooks, that's where we'll think of it too, as thinking through land power versus sea power and so on. And then in the 1990s, people take up geopolitics in a different way, thinking about it as critical geopolitics. And what they're doing there is drawing on the theory of that era to understand how the way that we map and write the world then makes the world. So when we say there's a cold war and this is an evil empire and we mark out the globe in terms of these different broad categories, that's not just demarcating what we find out there in the world, but that's making that geopolitical world and writing it into how we understand the world. And once we have those frames, we interpret everything through those lenses. And that's a really critical development. And then to add to that, a little later, we have a feminist approach to geopolitics, which has really influenced me. So that happens later, a little after 2000, when you have folks like Jennifer Hyman um, and other folks start to ask, well, where where are the people in all of this? Because after all, it's it's people who die in the war on Iraq, in the war on Afghanistan. It's, you know, ordinary men and women who are suffering through this geopolitical lens. And how did they experience this? What's the embodied life of geopolitics? It's not all this grand scale and from a distance. It's also being scared when it's the right weather for drone attacks in your village. It's also trying to understand whose bodies matter and when. Why is it that um, it's, for instance, men of a certain age who are automatically classified as enemy combatants when they're in an area where there's a drone strike? So these are questions that are about military strategy, but they're about how that's related to things like gender and race and how these things are understood and then enable these geopolitical strategies. It's about really the embodied life of struggles for territory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you. Uh, um, and to tie that to the book, actually, <laughs> I should have tied that a bit better to the book. So when I first started doing this research, I think I didn't, I had no idea. I'd never heard of the term feminist geopolitics. But what I did know was that when I was in Ladakh and I started doing research, When I asked questions about politics, people would start telling me about dinner parties. (laughs) And that really struck me. So I would ask about the political relationship between Buddhists and Muslims and India and how these things were in relation to each other. And people would say, let me tell you a story about this girl. And she fell in love with this man and he, she was Buddhist, he was Muslim, and now, now look what's happened to her. She's back home, wasting away, she's so skinny, a shadow of her former self. And I would think, but my question 
was about politics. Now we've got this tragic figure of this woman whose life has been ruined. And it happened so quickly. And not just in one story, but in so many stories. So that really, it was people talking to me and telling me these stories that, of course, helped me to understand what I was seeing in front of me. Hmm. Hmm. That. Thank you, Sarah. That is, um, that is uh, I suppose, the most uh, predictably surprising thing about so much of our field work is uh, our questions lead us and also mislead us into all of these uh uh, uh, territories and and you know uh, while I was reading your book, I was constantly thinking about uh, you know the landscape in which you were doing your field work, uh, the ways in which you were navigating various relationships um, in in the region, and I you know for uh, for our readers who uh, and for our listeners who uh, will get to the book, I. I also wanted to request you to tell us a little more about about your field work as well. And you were just beginning to, you know, allude to it. Um, I think the one of the one of your uh, respondents uh, also talks about uh, her own levels of, uh, if I can call it that, nonpanness, like uh, like how much of an insider outsider um, position. Um, uh, Buddhist marriage into a Muslim family or a Muslim marriage to a Buddhist family um, um, or, a, you know, a Kargili from Inle or a person in Lee in Kargil. So all of these sort of, you know, various mobilities and relationships that form the the larger network of people that you are, um, you know, talking to and listening to and learning from. I So I wanted you to tell us a little more about uh, the the various sets of relatedness and practice that you yourself were accumulating and uh, navigating while you were doing fieldwork and how how did it sort of also shape these very uh, you know like you're seeing these very um, uh, these questions which seem uh, very obvious but the answers to which take you to uh, dinner parties and weddings. Sure. I think it's interesting. It's something that I think about a lot. And in some ways, it's a difficult and uncomfortable topic. And I've written about this elsewhere in this article called Intimacy and Angst, because I felt that because I had spent quite a bit of time in Ladakh, and because of the ways that I felt due to the graciousness of my in-laws, and my family members, I felt really at home in Ladakh. And I feel that people relate to me in that way. So as I mentioned in the book, people, I'll ask, oh, did you tell me more about your your marriage? I know you had a love marriage. And they'll say, I know you had a love marriage. <laughs> so you you know what that's like. Or you or they would ask me questions about, well, when are you going to have a baby? Um, so I think that there was a way that um, it was too easy for me to be welcomed into kitchens and homes, and in a way that I sometimes felt I didn't deserve that, um, or I I don't know how to deserve that because people were sort of so generous, telling me really 
intimate and personal stories, like many of which I, of course, didn't put in the book because it felt sort of like too much trust had been placed in me. And that experience actually led me to shift how I do field work. So now I, I guess I'll talk more about the new project later, but I sort of intentionally cultivated a home away from my family home. <laughs> in Ladakh, so that now I work more with the Ladakh Arts and Media Organization and folks like Tashi Murup and Rizan Dolma, who was there when I when I worked there, and Manisha Ahmed. So all of these folks have helped me to have more of a professional home in Ladakh, and I think partly that was a response to feeling that I had accidentally received so much trust and generosity that it almost felt like too much to rely to rely on um or i i have i have some uncomfortable feelings for the ways that people put trust in me even when i disagreed with their politics so that people will talk to me and tell me things because of uh, personal or family connections in ways where I might disagree. And then in writing the book, I felt this anxiety of, I really care for this person and I appreciate this person. And I don't know that they would agree with what I'm writing. Um, so that was in some ways <clears throat> a little bit of a barrier <laughs> to, to mm. that writing. Mm. Mm. It's, it's, it's interesting you said that because uh I often, um, so I, I, I do my, I, I've been doing my field work in an area which is sort of familiar and distant to me because uh, um, I, my, my parents grew up in the, in the, in the central Himalayas in Uttarakhand, and so I have these networks of sort of both familial relationships and kin network, um, and I often also feel very. Uh, critically just you know uncomfortable with uh, these uh, almost like you inherit some of that trust right uh, um, yeah and this sort of problem it's uh, it's both a limitation and uh, and an advantage in that sense um, uh, like you were just explaining and I think uh, I, I'm going to go and read that piece that you wrote uh, because I I haven't uh, but uh, it but even in the text that the text of the book it is you make it you make uh, a of course these 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 questions are not resolvable in that sense but you do offer um um you do offer that that opportunity to think about what it means to to be doing uh field working positions or sort of kin friendship and trust while at the same time uh looking at these things uh both intimately and critically so, so thank you for offering that uh, that sort of that provocation almost actually, um, and that that actually takes me to a question that I had thought of asking you uh, initially is, can you uh, uh, for people who may not be very familiar with um, sort of the political history of the region, um, can you? Um, uh, can you tell us about? Can you tell us a little more about uh, the year nineteen eighty nine, and if that, in some sense, in your own historiography of fieldwork, in your own historiography of how 
this project unravels uh, for you and the stories that unravel and the lives and relationships that unravel actually um, uh, of love and of kin and relationships. Can, can you tell our listeners a little more about what is it about the political moment in 1989? What is this sort of, you know, um, uh, this political uh, history uh, which coalesces in that moment from where on it seems uh, like your project also takes on a very significant meaning uh, uh, to talk about intimate geopolitics. So I don't, I'm sorry if it's a very daunting question to taste the political history of a region as complex <laughs> as that. Uh, but I, I meant to say, uh, if you could speak a little more to you positioning your project in, in respect to those histories, uh, particularly with uh, what I could read in the book was 1989 seemed like a very strong reference point. Of course. Um, yes, and it's a complicated history. I think that when people think of this region, they, well, they think first of Kashmir and the way that Kashmir has sort of dominated the storyline about this area. And Ladakh itself has also often been thought in relation to Kashmir, and that sort of leads us to 89. Um, so, of course, in 1947, the state of Jammu and Kashmir becomes part of of India in these kind of contentious circumstances. And ever since then, it's contested because, of course, both Pakistan and India have always thought of it as as being sort of their birthright. Um, So, of course, that already brings us, and I I swear I'm coming to 1989, this, of course, brings us to the colonial heritage. And naturally, if I think about the ways that people's lives have been destroyed by geopolitics and the ways that this is complex and people are navigating their love life and their decision to have children in relation to um, geopolitics, of course, (laughs) if I want to blame anyone, I really want to start with the British, (laughs) which is, you know, necessary. (laughs) So all of these questions can really be tied to the way that they managed um, the way that they colonized and the way that they wished to divide people up according to these different categories that wouldn't necessarily match um, with how they saw themselves and the way that imperial strategies of conquering people and colonizing people were always tied up in drawing borders on their lands, on saying, you're this kind of person and you belong with this kind of laws in this kind of a space. And the story of Ladakh is also that, even though on the one hand, it feels quite, um, you know, you land and you're in a different world up there in the beautiful mountains and the blue sky and snowy peaks always and these little emerald valleys and everything is very beautiful. Um, but it's also shaped by this, this history as being this borderland. Um, and the ways that that has shaped what's possible and not possible, even as people try to live otherwise. So in 47, at partition, of course, places were mapped out according to religious identity so that the places with Muslim majorities were meant to be East and West Pakistan. And then the places, uh, the borders were drawn according to that sort of line. And then that has put in not only in that context, but in so many contexts, 
these ideas that if only you could just map the borders <laughs> and the jurisdictions such that there was some kind of homogeneity within these spaces, somehow so many other things would be resolved. But um, fortunately, people aren't homogenous anywhere. So this brings us to 1989. Um, Ladakis had been mobilizing in different ways ever since independence to require more autonomy. And they didn't want autonomy in the sense of breaking away from India itself, but rather they wanted more regional autonomy because the state of Jammu and Kashmir was this kind of colonial construction already. And as you can see, Jammu and Kashmir doesn't even have Ladakh in it. Um, It's not like Jammu, Kashmir and Ladakh. The Ladakhis had often felt like they were subsumed in the politics of the state. And then as the struggle for autonomy grew in Kashmir and those politics became intensified, I think a lot of folks in Ladakh, uh, particularly Buddhist Ladakhis, felt that they were being dragged along into something that sort of didn't pertain to them. And they wanted greater autonomy. They wanted to manage their own development funding. They wanted to be able to have more Ladakhis in different government spots and so on. So that had been occurring. And um, Van Beek writes this history in a more detailed way than I do, because my primary interest is the kind of intimate life of these stories. But uh, Ladakhis had been mobilizing for more autonomy along different lines. And then it's at this moment, 1989, where it's it's labeled the struggle for greater autonomy for Ladakh is labeled as being specifically <clears throat> in a determined way about religious identity. So there starts to be more language of we are religious minorities as Buddhists and our concerns are not understood. So it's we're a separate nation by all the tests and including more this language of religious identity and specifically Buddhist identity. So in 1989, this is also a context where at the, at the scale of India, there's concern about communal unrest. There's, it's the beginning of this turn towards Hindu nationalism, taking a greater role in national politics. And it just seems from when I talk to older folks, they're like, we started to understand this is how things get done. So even I, a Buddhist, people might say to me, even I, a Buddhist, I love my Muslim neighbors, but we have to understand how politics work. And politics work such that somebody told me, like, politics don't work if you just send these letters. But if people at the center, if the government at the center hears, oh, there's been a fire or there's a chance of communal unrest, that's when you get national attention. Um, So some people would tell me this was a a strategy. So in 1989, what happens is a group of um, Buddhists under the auspices, especially of the Ladakh Buddhist Association, they declare a boycott of Muslims, um, meaning you're not going to buy things from them, go to their house for parties, really have anything to do with them. And this was, of course... You can't declare the need for a boycott unless people are totally intimately entangled already. (laughs) Otherwise, if you're living separate lives, then you're already, you know, kind of segregated and you there's no need to declare such a thing. 
But here the boycott was a real rupture because people had been marrying each other, had been buying bread, um, buying meat, uh, working together as neighbors. All these things meant that people's lives were completely entangled. So this was a significant rupture that everyone talks about. And that's why this, this time comes up for me, because it occurs in oral history after oral history of Buddhists saying, I, I felt such shame when I saw my Muslim neighbor because I didn't, like I knew in my heart this wasn't right. Or we would go visit them in the nighttime because it just didn't feel right. Or these stories of people kind of refusing to participate. So this was this moment when people who had lived together, I mean, the Muslim Ladakis were as Ladaki as other Ladakis. <laughs> so they had been living together for so long. And this was a moment when it became marked as a political struggle that to kind of get attention, we had to draw, draw these borders such that we could get greater autonomy for, for our place. And it's a, a time talked about with real heart break, but also as a time that um, people interpret differently in terms of was it was it effective and to what degree was it was that effectiveness part because of the strategy of boycott or because the boycott ended. It's it's a little bit of a complicated history and how people talk about it, but it comes up again and again. And, and it comes up in the in the history of marriage too, because the the last couple I had talked to that had had a intermarriage that wasn't sort of disrupted had married in 1991, which was the kind of the, right before the boycott ended. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, thanks for putting that so concisely. That was a masterclass in summarizing. I don't um, know about that. <laughs> No, it truly was like, oh, I was like, I could have taken notes. Um, uh, and, you know, that's, I, even when I was reading the book, I was constantly thinking about, you know, what does it mean to boycott, right? So what, the, and, and you said it so beautifully that uh, boycott acknowledges, boycotting something acknowledges uh, pre-existing relationships and intimacies, right? So otherwise, what would be the need to call for any kind of boycott? And I put it in, uh, and like you just said that, you know, the boycott ended in uh, 1991. Uh, so I'm just trying to uh, think about what does it mean to boycott someone, to boycott social relationships and intimacies, how are these active conditions of boycott created and reproduced? What ends boycotts and reproduces them? Uh, there's also uh, in the book you also talk about banning uh, intermarriage as part of the of the boycott. So, what does an ethnography of boycott, which has you know in sort of in hindsight, um, look like? I have another question related to that, which I'll, I'll, I'll wait for and hold on to. But I wanted to you to sort of, you know, um, perhaps think aloud, and you've sure already thought about it uh, with us. How does one study uh, the effect of something which has apparently ended, like the boycott, um, and and what does it mean to sort of still uh, 
perhaps hold some nostalgia, but also some guilt, but also some active um, uh, imagining about what boycott has, what what is the, the social life of that boycott lingers, even though it may have formally ended. It really does. It really does. And I, I thought about this, especially because um, now I work more with young people and I also um, had interviewed them for this project too. And I think that it struck me really nicely when I did, for instance, a small focus group where young people went out and they interviewed older folks in their neighborhoods about their life. And then we came together and we had a focus group about what they had learned. And they had also taken some pictures. And what was interesting in that moment was that um, these young people really, it made me think about how we teach and we don't teach history. Because they would tell me, you know, we never learned about this in school. And part of that is this colonial model of education. Again, I blame the British, where you're really taught to the test. And if you're from a place like Ladakh, you're completely invisible in that education. You don't learn about your language, your people, your history, like in so many other colonized places. You, you learn things that are suited toward this, towards this test. And then you're at home. People don't necessarily want to tell these stories or talk about them or they have their own complex feelings. So young people, when they had gone and interviewed folks, they would tell me we didn't really, we hadn't really asked these questions or heard these stories. And we feel we like we ourselves, we this group of Buddhist and Muslim young people feel so close with each other, we're classmates, we have all these relationships, and we can never, never imagine doing these things. But that was so tragic to me in this way when I heard it, because the older people I speak to also had, you know, Muslim and Buddhist friends and felt so close, and this could never happen. Um, So it just gave me so much anxiety about the future, just thinking about the ways that these things replicate or that intimacy is more fragile than we would like it to be, I guess. Um, But I think I'm getting a little away from your actual question. So when it comes to the social life of the boycott and the after effects, I think it's in that that people, people, we get taught you're this kind of a person and you're taught that in some ways in opposition to other kinds of people. And you might not be realizing until the crucial moment when you have to ask yourself who you're in solidarity with, you might not realize that you've been learning to define yourself in opposition to others until that moment when that other needs your solidarity and you're not there for them. So I think that listening to young people um, talk about this also gave me a different impetus to write the book. So when I started to write the book, as I said, I, I felt so much anxiety. I felt like would these women we talk, I talked to who are in their 60s or 70s, would they see themselves in how I wrote about their lives? Was I being respectful even as I had concerns about the kind of political implications of their choices? And I started to write more clearly when I thought about the young people I'm working with now. So I've been doing this project with college-educated youth, young people who are studying in these 
cities like Delhi and Mumbai that feel in many ways like foreign lands. And then they come back and they see Ladakh in this different way. And they have also all these questions about why did my grandparents participate in this boycott or why can't we just live together? And I felt like when I was writing, it helped me to have folks like them in mind. So I was thinking of people like this, these two young people, Tiong Chuskit and Sanzen Angmo. They're young people um, who are thinking about women's reproductive health and how they can have generative conversations across generations about this in their village. So I thought about like, how would they read my words and how would they understand differently the choices that people in their mother's and grandmother's generation had made and how these choices were made in this great contingency and in relation to this colonial heritage and in relation to this just really sincere desire for your child to have an easy and beautiful life. (laughs) So I don't know if that answers your question, but it's... um, there is this ongoing life of this boycott where people might learn it not through history books, but more through behaviors they're told to enact or things they're told about how they're dressing or who they're hanging out with. And then I think it helps to try to understand how all those choices are made in this historical and geographical context. No, thank you. Thank you for, uh, thank you for your response because um, it it brings me um, your work with uh, you know the young uh, college educated folks who perhaps some of them are even returning to work in Ladakh um, uh, and and you point out some of those conversations in your last chapter of the book and it you know it made me think and as you are very well aware uh, of the work on sort of youth. Uh, futures or, or or discourse of an action and aspiration, particularly in let's say um, in the Indian Himalayas, there's a sort of a lot of work on that. And I've been thinking about, you know, what is what is the perhaps the value, desire, and role of education in all of this, right? And uh, if if the one thread in your book is about uh, sort of young love and romance, the other thread, which is very evident in the conversations, is about the desire for quote unquote good education, uh, which somehow is also at various occasions tied in with the possibilities of romantic love as well. Because typically, this that's where people are finding people to fall in love with, right? So, uh, and so I was, I was, I was wondering, how do we think about education and love and uh, reprosexual politics, so to speak, uh, together? Uh, and I'm always reminded of uh, Laura Ahern's fabulous work on love and literacy on love letters in Nepal, right? Uh, where the the widespread uh, the of literacy actually also was very agentive in both ways to to help people describe and uh, communicate their love to each other uh, and fall in love. 
and be able to express that through through this exchange of letters and then uh, also culminate in in domestic marital relationships um so yeah i i wanted to think with you and i wanted to sort of uh you know uh, ask you to speak to your own experiences because as you were saying you are increasingly more involved in a more sort of professional or uh, more sort of concerted and focused way with the young college educated folks um what yeah what are the what are these entanglements of desire of education and love and um and what does it mean for both intimacies and geopolitics uh, especially in uh, what in a region like ladakh where uh, you know some of the, the the stories that people here outside are people who get who who perhaps may, may come to a delhi or bombay for education but uh would go back to ladakh to make it better right so what what are these desires for ladakh for education and for a certain kind of love that get entangled and if you you know you the way that you experience them on your own uh during your you know your long sort of relationship uh, with ladakh and your research sure um so it was interesting so as part of the research for my book i talked to i did, i did a survey of about 200 women asking them you know how many kids did you have and did you use family planning this was partly because people had told me oh muslims don't use family planning buddhists use family planning and then when you go out and talk to people guess what everybody loves family planning um and <laughs> It's really popular, especially if your your mom and your grandma, people were dying from having so many kids and there was high infant mortality. When the first gynecologist comes to town, you love her. You adore her. You use the highest quality of praise for that person um, who literally has saved your sister's life. So family planning is really popular and that's tied to education because who can afford to have a lot of kids when what that means is trying to get them educated to prepare them for God knows whatever is coming. Um, so as I was doing that survey, I would be out in this small villages with somebody who had not completed their education or who had gone to school for a couple years. And then that woman would be telling me, I wake my child up at five and I make her study and I can't help her, but I will make her study. And they're placing so much into that child. So much love and care is going into that child. And then at the same time, that mother can't say, when you get to Jammu, here's how you find who's a scammer and who's a really good coach who's going to help you. How can she help with that? She can't even you know, help study for the exam. So parents are struggling to put together money from like selling milk or like doing all these extra jobs, going to work on a new road for a few days, doing all these things to invest this love and care into this child who's the future of their family. Um, and then they're sending that child into completely unknown so women would talk to me for so long about, we don't know what they're doing. Are they doing drugs? Are they just buying flashy clothes? Are they sleeping with people? Like, what's happening to my child beyond those mountains? Um, and it made me wonder, what is happening to their child? 
you know, it really made me curious, uh, not curious, but I just cared. I wanted to know. And then at the same time, I remember this conversation, I'll leave out the names, but I remember this conversation with one of our cousins up in Ladakh, where she was showing me all these pictures on her phone um, of her friends back in the city where she had studied. And she showed me all these pictures and she's like, look, none of them are from Ladakh, but all of them are. And then she used a racial slur for East Asian folks. She said, all of these are this slur, just like me. And it stuck in my mind. I was, I was speechless. You're, you, you're casually using a racial slur to explain why your friends are who they are. <laughs> and the thing, the reason they're your friends is because they are also racialized in this specific way. So that really struck with me, the casualness of this comment and the fact that all her friends, so her friends were mostly from the Northeast, so she's Ladakhi. So the Northeast is so far, food's different, culture's different, so many things are different. But then she finds a home in these friends. So I was really struck by that. And around the same time, to my great fortune, um, I got contacted. This was a little bit after. I got contacted by this um, potential PhD student, Mabel Gergen. Um, and I met her in the Delhi airport. <laughs> That's a long story. I guess I can't get into. But anyway, we met and I started telling her. She was telling me about the work she wanted to do on Sikkim. And I told her how I wanted to do this project on young people. And I told her this story about the cousin. And she was like, Sarah, you're telling my story. Um, so we ended up working together on this other project you're talking about. So when it comes to thinking about the role of education, it's so many different things because it comes with all this other process and practices and experiences. Um, so it's interesting because in the book, when I first started thinking about education, I thought of it in the way people would tell me, as Muslims, we used to be bad Muslims. We didn't really, we weren't literate. We didn't have enough education about our religion, and we couldn't be good practicing Muslims. And Buddhists um, similarly would talk about how they understand Buddhism better, but then, and how this helps them further along their spiritual path. But then in other contexts, people would tell me the reason we fight is because of education. Education has made us small minded, it's made us narrow minded, it's made us see people in different ways. And now we no longer trust each other. And this way that you're describing, they'll, they'll say like, yes, I know I'm talking in this romantic terms about the past, but we can't live like that now. And it was describing time as this force that comes and overtakes us. And we have no agency to live the way that we used to live. And this is tied in how they talk about it to education, to literacy, to all these other things that teach you to live in a different way. And they both, uh, folks both want to send their, their kids for education. They know that they need to. But there's also a sense of loss as though the world is unfolding in this way. And we are just these pieces of it, um, which I found really poignant. When it comes to the other pieces of, so what are these kids up to? <laughs> these young people, when they're in all these different cities, I mean, of course, they're having all their own 
stories. I mean, it was interesting because Mabel and I came to it thinking in some ways about that experience of discrimination. But naturally, that's just one piece of everyone's life. And then it's been really beautiful to learn about all the other things that are going on or the ways that people cope with discrimination. So when we talk to young people, they are like, oh, yeah, of course I face discrimination. Let me tell you about this time um, that all these things happen to me. And then they're like, but you know what I love is to go to the art museum. Or, you know what I love is how I learned to, like, dance with my whole body. This one, I'll leave leave out, I'll, like, protect the names of the not-so-innocent. But people would tell me, you know, like, oh, like, in Ladakh, you dance this one way. In Delhi, people kind of dance with their foot. And then in Varanasi, it was like, I learned to dance with my whole body. And it's it's just interesting to hear the kind of joy and the life and the ways that people are determined to um, make this beautiful thing. Like each person is the protagonist of their own story. So they're weaving these experiences of discrimination and their desires to do something for Ladakh and their Ladakhi identity. They're weaving it into so many other parts of their story and trying to really forge their own future, even as collectively they're doing that in relation to the demands and desires of their parents and grandparents and the pressures of the neoliberal state and capitalism and all these other forces. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, I think it's appropriate uh, to give a shout out to Mabel at this point saying, hi, Mabel. Hi, uh, Mabel. We talked about you. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'll be sure to, uh, you know, tag her onto this audio when it, as and when it's uploaded. Uh, <laughs> the connection between how I got to know about you and your work. So she does deserve um, a very uh, uh, gratitudeful mention right now. Absolutely. Um, um, you know, when you were talking about um, young folks and their desire to do something for Ladakh, uh, cultivating their own uh, Ladakhi identity and forging their futures. I, at the back of my mind, I was also thinking about the kind of political discourse that, let's say, the current generation of uh, Ladakhi Buddhist, Ladakhi Muslim men and women, young ones, um are both inheriting and engaging with and i asked this because i was trying to think about what are the kinds of both majoritarianism and uh, minority sort of identity sentiments uh, that are crucial again to the way in which uh, the politics of Ladakh has unfolded uh, even more crucially um, to propel a demand for first autonomous hill council and then a Indian territory and the trifurcation that happened uh, last year uh, in 2019. So I'm trying to think of, you know, keeping with the spirit of your own insights of these ideas about intimate geopolitics, what is the intimate or intergenerational geopolitics, if I were to frame the question like that? 
uh, are, are people engaging with him the same way that, let's say, a certain generation of the Ladakhi Buddhist Association leadership did. The fact that uh, the MP from Ladakh is a young Buddhist man, um, does that have any... Uh, uh, any representational impact whatsoever on perhaps young Ladakhi Buddhist men and their ways of um, thinking about the future of the region? Is there a is there an alignment uh, or are there deep divergences with that project? So I'm just trying to think about because you know your the book your, in, your book is so also helps me also meets sort of the future uh, the idea of a future not just an open-ended question, but also looks at the ways in which the future is constantly imagined right now, right? So and what are the ways in which that future is captured and managed? So uh, I'm trying to think through in the current moment and uh, what transpired in the most sort of, you know, authoritarian way, uh, particularly in 2019 in August and the trifurcation thereon, which seems like at one level to an outside observer, the culmination of a demand that Ladakh has held out for so long. But at the same time, also seems like um, uh, if, one were to, if one were to keep an eye on um, both the celebration, but also, uh, like you point out, I think also Mabel points out, and one of the things I read from her, um, the, the, the reservations with it as well, right? So um, I was trying to, I would want you to give us a sense of how a certain kind of majoritarian politics work in a region with deep minority sentiments and what does it have, what can it tell us about it? What does it you tell you about actually particularly in terms of these intergenerational intimate geopolitics? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and I feel mm-hmm. so, it feels so strange that we left, we left just a few days before that happened. Of course, we didn't, we didn't know that was going to happen. Um, so we had been in Ladakh for the summer, and then we left and had just gotten back here um, before that all unfolded. And it was, I. so then I was, of course, seeing everything unfold through, you know, Facebook groups and WhatsApp updates and all of this kind of thing. And it was so strange to see it in that way too, because of the way that social media feeds kind of mix everything together. So I would be, I would be seeing these concerns and fears for what's happening in the valley, like what's happening in Srinagar. Are people okay? It's so, so scary to think about the ways that a place can be just cut off. Um, and then at the same time in Ladakh, people celebrating this thing that they had been wanting forever. And it's hard not to be sympathetic because there is this real sense of, you know, oh, you, you're up in Ladakh, you're trying to get a promotion at your job, you have to go to Srinagar for some time. And you have to deal with this, that or the other thing, or you know, posts being full of people from outside when you're already such a small population that, you know, people, you know, people ask sometimes the students that I talk to, oh, do you need a passport to go to Ladakh? 
Um, or the other day there was this um, thing on one of the Ladakh Instagram pages where uh, a screenshot of the, of the news when people had some Ladakhis speaking and they had put down their Indian Ladakhis. <laughs> Like to specify that they were the Indian kind of Ladakhis, like there's some other kind of Ladakhis. So when you're marginalized in so many ways, and then you have this experience of marginalization, I mean, don't you want autonomy? <laughs> so it's it's so, I mean, I think it's the ways that our world has been geopolitically shaped by this um form of sovereignty that's also always colonizing already um, that makes it so so I don't know I don't have I don't even have a word for it because it's not bittersweet it's just that everything is so simultaneous where your liberation might be caught up in some other's domination Um, and who or how are you to untangle that? In some ways, the world is set up like that. Just like people who, the people I mentioned a while ago who would tell me, well, the time itself is like that. So in some ways, I, I feel that when I look at the political situation. And I wish it's it feels uncomfortable to speak on it without having been there in person in roomfuls of people speaking where... You know, I get together with young folks like this workshop that Mabel and I did in 2017. And then in the room, of course, with young people, they're saying so many things, you know, so there you might have a young man who's talking about this um, questions of autonomy and and so on from a Buddhist perspective, but then also really wants to make sure that Muslims are part of the student association um and that going forward his generation does things differently and he might be working with a young woman who's like working with him and they're trying to see like yes how can we make our student association so that it's inclusive so that moving forward we don't sow these seeds of division for a future generation and then at the same time um in smaller conversations the young woman might be asking, but yeah, also, why are all our politicians men? (laughs) So all these things are, you know, unfolding in this way, where people are understanding their relationship to the state and the state's forms of domination, I mean, in relationship to their own, you know, which part of Ladakh do they come from? Do they come from Changtong, which is completely underrepresented in terms of education or do they come from sham and all of these other things are unfolding in ways where we can't really people have individual trajectories in relation to the state and then they're trying to do some new things but have different material interests as well and people have different things at stake mm-hmm. thanks uh, thanks sarah i was you know i was thinking that perhaps it's my own misgiving uh, about geopolitics as a term that uh, I opened our conversation with talking about uh, the border dispute with China. And actually, uh, the way that this conversation has gone, uh, there, you know, I, I, I get a better sense of what intimate geopolitics actually, you know, gets sad because there are so many degrees and uh, scale that which it is playing out and you are able to 
capture primary you know those those uh those scenes and those scales which uh which are not if not if not left out but are perhaps um trivialized uh uh in the larger scheme of geopolitics um so so thank you for that uh, laying out that insight uh i have one other question for you before i ask you our final question for the podcast i actually wanted you to uh, tell us a little bit about about the cover of the book oh it, no. it, yeah it is i it's so striking i think one of the reasons why i decided to pick up the book was also because of the cover um yeah. and, and and uh title i just for our our, our listeners I'll, uh, i'll i'll put up a photo of the cover uh, when we do the book uh the podcast blog so you can have a visual reference as well but the cover is titled mountains are the true ancestors uh can you tell us a little bit more about the artist and uh uh why um why uh, uh cover about ancestors when talking so much about the future yeah sure yeah i just love the cover so the cover is by this artist um chema dorje and you can go to he actually has started an art cafe um in ladakh that's right kind of near just above the mosque it's called spindel and it's such a beautiful place uh anybody who goes to lay should go there right away um so i i knew that i couldn't accept any other cover than a ladakhi artist especially i owe that really to my work with the ladakh arts and media organization um that's directed by manisha ahmed and then um tashi morup runs it in lay and because of my work with them i had seen so much beautiful art by ladakhi artists who are working through these themes of what does it mean to be ladakhi among all their other personal themes like their relationship to you know buddhism or sexuality or whatever they're thinking through um so i knew that i really wanted to work with a ladakhi artist and then i had been looking through i had talked to somebody from lamo um rinchen dolma and um asked her who i should think about and i had looked at a bunch of things so i really liked this piece um i mean i like all of tamat's work but i really liked this piece because he was i like that it combines several different things so you have like a little bit of a hint of the tanka painting which is really familiar to everyone like a religious a religiously oriented painting where you really do things in a prescribed way because the intent isn't to make a beautiful piece of art but to kind of attain liberation from the world so you follow a formula to get to that so he's incorporated like a little bit of that and then the mountain that's iconic for ladakh but then we're always told how the himalayas were like under the ocean and i've always been able to visualize in this strange way in my mind when i'm flying to lay i really feel as though you can feel that these mountains are still crashing into into asia and you know they're supposed to be getting a little higher every day so he he talks about how the ocean in the center is about the past when Ladakh was under the ocean 
Um, and then he's made this collage with rice paper. And then the little bits of the mountain are actually made with car parts from a magazine. <laughs> so I just really like the juxtaposition and the way he's thinking through the really long-term history of Ladakh in this way that ties it to the earth itself. And there's a feeling of belonging, even as it's also kind of looking to the future in the way that he's a very contemporary artist, um, a little bit, yeah, just a contemporary artist, forward-looking, really creative, um, fearless. I felt like it's a nice combination to be thinking about how you can be both those things. Um, tied into your your past, but also thinking through your relationship to the future. Hmm. No, that that is indeed wonderful because uh, it also brings me back to you know how you open your text with also telling us about how even the idea of Ladakh itself, right, as a as a region or as a demarcated territory, is also such also happens uh, more sort of aggressively during the colonial and then sort of the post-colonial period, uh, before which even to conceptualize it as a demarket territory is is difficult because it's such uh, embedded in such a large network of trade and uh, trade routes and uh, mobility and uh, mobility of people and goods that uh, it's sort of this, you know, not a bounded region, so to speak, um, um, so I, I understand how this cover art uh, appeals to your sense of a deep history of Ladakh. Um, uh, thank you so much, Sarah, for your time today. I've taken up a lot of it already. Um, but before we let you go, I uh, would uh, love to hear from you about uh, your next project. You've already told us bits and bobs about it. Um, in the course of the conversation, but if you would like to share with us what is it that you are working on and what can we expect to see next, I'm sure it'd be a delight. Sure, thank you. Um, it's so it's hard to it's hard to wrap up because I'm doing a bunch of little I'm doing a bunch of collaborative work, especially with colleagues and my PhD students. So I'm lucky to work with some really wonderful PhD students and. I'm doing sort of different projects with each of them related more to trying to understand some of the same themes, but in local, in not local, in different contexts. So that is one strand of my current work um, where I'm trying to understand racial capitalism and internal colonialism in the context of the U.S., especially with Pavitra Vasudevan, now at UT Austin, and another student of mine, um, Carlos Serrano and Pallavi Gupta, were talking about racial capitalism and um, different kind of how it unfolds in different places. So I'm trying to take some of these themes and look at them across contexts. Um, so I've also been writing about the U.S. and the right-wing fascism of Donald Trump, the way that's also tied to a kind of gendered geopolitics of white masculinity um, come to defend and subjugate others. So that's one strand. But then with Mabel, I have this ongoing project about college students. So that we're wrapping up now. And we have a list of things that we're writing um, about young people in relation to 
the urban as a specific kind of site and the ways that cities can be folded into one's personal narrative. We're also trying to understand the relationships between things like racialization and um, scheduled tribe status and the ways that tribal affiliations were laid out in the constitution, also in relation to kind of colonial anthropology and how those questions are related to time, like who's understood to be immovable in time and how people are positioned in relation to the state in ways that are tied to racialization and also to the idea of tribal. Um, So I'm working on sort of an array of projects like that. Also trying to think about like, race and racialization in relation to the future. So Mabel and Pavitra and I have wrote about that in relation to the Anthropocene. Um, I think it can seem like I'm sort of a scattered mess of a person with little bits of things all over. What I'm really trying to understand is how we're making the world in relation to these categories of race and gender, and then how Big political movements are also tied to our kind of daily life in terms of how how we're making the world through our relationships with others. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for saying that. As an anthropologist, I deeply appreciate uh, <laughs> studying about making the world in uh, and the ways in which it is related deeply and perhaps very very intimately to our own lives. Uh, and not just to sort of the mega spectacles of, of you know, the political stage or the geopolitical stage in, in this case. Uh, thank you so much, Sarah, for your time. This was a lovely conversation. All the best for your next uh, series of projects. And uh, we hope to talk to you uh, with the next big splash. Thank you so much. It's been lovely talking to you. And I also can't wait to read your book. <laughs> All right, then. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye.